Welcome to the Deepwater Initiative's Religion and Ecology podcast. In this episode, I am sitting down with Dr. Elizabeth McAnally, a graduate from the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, California, to discuss her work on an integral water ethic and its extensions into daily life. She has recently published a book titled Loving Water Across Religions, Contributions to an Integral Water Ethic, whereby she explores the relationship between humans and water within three world religions, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism. In addition to serving as the newsletter editor and website content manager for the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale, Elizabeth has been creatively imagining how to expand her academic work into other contemplative practices, such as in her teaching of Tai Chi and Qi Gong, which she hopes to use to help foster compassion for water and change how humans interact with the natural world. Crossing the River Jordan Crossing the River Jordan All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate you joining me. Also want to say congratulations on your book. It just came out today, February 20th. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's a great honor. Yeah, absolutely. This is the first Deep Water Initiative podcast, so we're really, really pleased to have you here. And yeah, so the title of your book, Loving Water Across Religions, Contributions to an Integral Water Ethic. I, I do just want to ask you before, before we dig into your book, a lot of your professional and academic work is, can be categorized within this field of religion and ecology. You've done some work and you, or you are presently working with, with the forum on religion and ecology at Yale. So I just want to ask you, uh, you, don't, you don't have to speak for the forum, but just kind of personally, what, what is this field? For, for a lot of people, religion and ecology can seem to, to sort of be a... a uh, a separate, two separate disciplines. You know how how can we bridge religion with with science? These seem to be two fields that have a historical uh, mismatch. Can you speak to maybe what you think this field is, how you've seen it evolve in in your professional work, but also what inspired you to maybe uh, engage with it academically? Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, the way that I see it, religion and ecology is. Um, a transdisciplinary field of study that says religions need to be in dialogue with natural sciences and social sciences and the humanities so that we can work together to have comprehensive solutions for environmental problems. Um, Any one-sided perspective will never, ever be sufficient. And so religions by themselves are necessary but not sufficient for for bridging this um, this huge issue of of what's going on right now with with um, all kinds of global environmental issues and with water in particular and religion ecology is not only an academic field of study it's also this engaged force on the ground so on the Forum on Religion and Ecology website, 
You can find information about all kinds of engaged projects that different religious traditions are, are doing right now to, to bridge this, this gulf between religion and ecology. Um, and so I highly recommend you checking. And I know you have checked it out. but Absolutely. Others. And um, the, the forum is, is so huge, obviously, with Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. They've been very influential for our field. For me, I wonder, is this an academic, purely an academic field? I mean, is, is for, for us, we're, we're in academia, so we're, we're living and we're breathing in this world. But you're talking about this being a dialogue. I mean, how, how can we bridge this gap between what's being talked about in, in the classroom and, and, and how this is sort of making its way out in, into the world and, and how this dialogue is happening? Well, one of the promises th that religion ecology has is it, it's about this um, motivating moral force. Like every every religious tradition deals in some way or another with values and ethics, and and how to be in the world. And so, so religion ecology is a way for people to to see um, how the material world, the natural world around us, is related to our our basic beliefs our our religious practices and rituals and it can really help us to to increase that sensibility of moral concern for for the world around us a lot of people also get their backs up when they hear the the word religion um at least in at our school at the california institute of integral studies we have this program ecology spirituality and religion so I don't know how much the forum uh, is necessarily exploring, you know, expanding this uh, this discussion. I mean, what what is spirituality and, and how does it compare to religion? Because is spirituality something that's sort of on this individual level? Um, it at least that's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, whereas religion is something more communal, or or is yeah, is one more flexible than the other? I think that probably depends on the person. Okay. Um, I, I could see where you're coming from by saying spirituality could be a more individual approach um, because it might not have the lineage that a religious tradition has. Um, but you could still practice spiritual traditions within communities. Um, so, so religion ecology and um, spiritual environmentalism or spiritual ecology um, these kinds of, they're all overlapping. And, and um, I'm just really grateful to see this, this field and force. Yeah, yeah. So a uh, big, big topic in your book, obviously, um, is an integral water ethic. So what, what is an integral water ethic? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the way that I see it, an integral water ethic is at its core, a way to engage with water with love and compassion. And, and so whenever I kind of formulated this idea in my book, I was drawing upon the different um, religious traditions that I'm most familiar with, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And I don't write much about other religious traditions, um, but, but these, these religions have much to offer in a way of um, like how had they approached water in the past and presently 
and and I feel that that we can gain insights from the religions of the world, um, whether they're our personal practice practices or if they're other religious traditions that we don't have a lot in common with, but we can still um, draw insights from and and see how they can contribute to um, a more reverential and respectful relationship with water. And so by an integral water ethic, I'm, I'm saying that we need to approach water in an integral way. We need to um, not see water as a mere resource and a commodity and a sewer, but we need to see water as something perhaps sacred or at least special. And in this way, would see water as um, as a source of life that nourishes all beings and that itself is is trying to teach us and teach us how to be humans and so one of the things that i talk about in my book is that if we can learn how to have a more intimate relationship with water then that can translate to a more intimate relationship with our larger earth community because water flows through all living beings it's so beautiful and it, it's such a fundamental starting point with how we can really talk to this point about of, of being integral. I mean, water is in everything. It is the source of life for everything. So it's, it's an incredible touch point um, to really start with. I, I'm curious about your, your process here um, with picking your religions that you talk about in your book. You have Buddhism, Hinduism, and Christianity. What was your reason for sort of working with, with those religions? I mean, obviously, you wanted to talk to uh, water and, and the, the use of water um, in those in specific rituals and, and sacraments. Um, but, you know, was it something that just resonated with you? Like, wh- or did you want to go into, uh, like, rather than, say, looking at all, all three Abrahamic and, like, sort of and doing a comparative thing there? I mean... How come you ended up sort of settling on those three different religions? I, I think it's because I resonate the most with those three okay, yeah. religious traditions. Um, I I was raised Southern Baptist, and then I've also been to India and have a strong connection with ah, okay. with um, Indian practices with with rivers, and um, in Buddhist meditation resonates very much for me. And so, so because I, I felt drawn to those different religions, I thought, well, I might as well write about what I know the most about. Yeah, it makes sense. And, yeah. and you really, um, you, you can hear your heart coming through your pages on your book because um, you're talking about building love and compassion and with all of life, with all beings. And to have these practices that, that resonate with you, I, I think that's, that's so huge. And um, and, and why you've focused on compassion really as, as an emotive catalyst for change. So do you think that loving water and, and, and building this integral water ethic, will it generally result in an ethical or sustainable treatment of water? Or do you see kind of a a gap between belief and action? Is it, does the, um, does the love come first and, and the action come later or, or, do they sort of come at the same time? I mean, h- how do you see that that progression working? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And for me, I feel that they overlap so much. Um, okay. Our, our worldview and our actions. And, and for some people, it might be um, that um, 
acting in a certain way in a particular ritual or practice, that might help to, to further strengthen or, or clarify their, their understanding about water. Um, but it, I think it, it just really depends on, on the person. And, and yeah, with an integral water ethic, I think it's, it's this um, way of being in the world that, that encompasses um, your, your body and your, your speech and your mind and um, your relationships with, with water and, and all water beings around you and around the world. So, so yeah, it feels like a very integral approach. Okay. So there is one chapter from your book that I'd, I'd like to talk to here, and that's uh, to sort of maybe uh, slingshot us here in, in, into a little uh, series of questions. And, and that's your section on, on Hinduism, the Yamuna River, and loving service of water. It's a really interesting um, section of your book, but also situation that's arising in India right now. So essentially, for those who are listening, the Yamuna River is a river that flows from the north of India to the east, and, and it eventually merges with the Ganges. And it's, it's long been worshipped as, as a goddess. But um, in recent times, it's been polluted with industrial and human waste, dammed and redirected for agricultural irrigation. Um, so there's, there's a really gnarly environmental situation that's, that's going on in the Yamuna, not necessarily as true in north in the north, um, closer to its source in the Himalayas. Um, but as we we go through more agriculture, cities, um, there's a lot of waste that's getting dumped in. So in essence, we have three tiers of devotees, those who feel the Yamana to be both pure in a material and ritual sense, those who recognize the dirtiness of the river but don't feel it affects the spiritual nature of the river, and those who feel the river and the goddess incarnate are dying. So to put it uh, a little more plainly, there are those that are sort of feeling like the river is so divine, you just can't touch it. It's We can throw all we want into the river. It cleanses everything. There are those that kind of fall in the middle as far as saying we recognize sort of the divine status of the Yamana. And then those that... Um, you know, also see what's going on um, environmentally. And then there are those that, that feel the goddess is, is dying. So um, there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, number one, in thinking about it, what's just the culture of India as far as looking at river a river as a goddess. And, and there's a lot that's been in the news recently in uh, looking at um, rivers that, that are being given certain rights. Um, uh, in India. And, um, yeah, I mean, can you talk to maybe how an integral water ethic can help us sort of understand this spectrum and then understand how we can try to find a balance between seeing the divineness in nature, but also recognizing that we have to care for it on a, on a material level. Um, how we can look at the science of water and, and what we're being told and, um, everything that's emerging um, and understanding that, but, but at the same time really um, seeing this, um, this being as, as sacred. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, so just to, um, to point out for our listeners that threefold distinction of, of the different kinds of relationships that, that 
Indians have with the Yamuna River. That comes from David Haberman's book, River of Love in an Age of Pollution, which I can't recommend highly enough. Great book, great book. Yeah, yeah. it is. And and so so with this this example, you can see how how religion isn't isn't sufficient. You know, we we really need more than just um, beliefs about about um, the river. We we really need to see how this river is being um, affected by by humans and and the science of ecology can be supplemental to religious rituals and practices and worldviews. And and so what David Haberman brings up is is with this group of practitioners who see see the Yamana as a divine goddess who is negatively affected by the, the human impacts of, of dumping industrial waste and agricultural products into the river and, um, and damming and diverting the river so that there's not a robust flow. Um, seeing that a, a divine river can be affected negatively by humans, this has inspired um, what is is termed seva or loving service for the river, and seva generally or traditionally has been um, a religious practice, a puja, a way of making offerings for for a goddess, and this would generally be done in terms of uh, lighting candles or incense or giving food or or flowers, um, but. These days, seva is being reinterpreted as an environmental practice. Um, how can we have loving service to this mother goddess, these Indian practitioners ask? How can we be responsible devotees of, of our mother who is, who is suffering from, from all of this um, industrial growth, mainly? And... And so, so asking this question, how can we be of service and tying it together with, with deep rooted beliefs and um, like worldviews related to, to the river, that seems to have um, a, a big transformative aspect. So is that something that most um, uh, active practitioners are, are jumping on board with as far as this reinterpretation of seva i mean so if i got if i heard you right so seva was has been historically sort of associated with puja yeah okay so and so that that whole idea is changing right okay right or it's it's yeah it's um it's adapting in light of the ecological situation today okay. Okay. and i don't know if i don't know the percentage of of practitioners who who are incorporating this sense of of loving service into their religious practice um, as it deals with cleaning up the river, um, but it is definitely a growing movement. So okay. I'm looking forward to seeing how it how it continues to evolve. So is it helping? Um, I don't know if if David Haberman gets into this in his book as far as just either bringing a greater awareness or changing attitudes towards the river. Um, yeah, is it is it changing anything at all? I think it is. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes. Um. Okay. Um, and then, so how would you compare, say, seva 
to an integral water ethic? Um, are they sort of one and the same? Um, yeah. Well, I don't know if they're one and the same, but they're definitely compatible. Okay. And I personally draw a lot of, of insight and motivation from this concept of seva. Okay. Um, just asking the question, how can I be of service has, has meant a lot in my life. And, and so seeing how, how this is, um, this can be seen as a, as a way of, of enacting a greater sense of, of care for water, um, across religions. Um, I feel that's, that's really powerful. Okay. So, um, I I do want to jump in also to, to another section of your book that, uh, it's just so beautiful and creative and um, really amazing. And I just want to talk to this term you coined, which is the aquasattva and eco sattva. So what, what's an eco sattva and, and what's an aquasattva? I mean, are they the same thing? Or? Yeah. Well, so yeah. eco sattva was actually coined in the 90s. Um, was it? Oh, yeah. okay. So okay. a group of uh, Zen practitioners at Green Gulch Farm in, ah, in okay. uh, Northern California, they were uh, protesting the mining of ancient redwood trees and okay. they called themselves eco sattvas. Okay. Um, and that term is, is related to a very traditional Buddhist term, bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is, is um, a heroic being who vows to attain enlightenment so that, that he or she can liberate others from suffering. And so um, a bodhisattva has um, two wings, as it were. Uh, one is, is compassion and the other is wisdom. And, and so with wisdom, it's the wisdom of seeing the interdependent nature of all reality, how all things are intimately intertwined. And, and by seeing that, you can see that um, compassion, that somebody's suffering is really your own suffering and vice versa. And so when we're th- talking about an eco-sattva, we're, we're seeing how the suffering of the greater world around us is our own suffering and, and how important it is to share in that suffering and to work toward the well-being of, of the world. And so by aquasattva, I was, I was drawing on that term, eco-sattva and a, a bodhisattva, so that, that it's looking at, at water and how to, to see water in terms of compassion and wisdom and how we personally can develop a sense of, of care and concern for water and see that water helps us understand the inter- interrelated nature of all reality as it flows through all living beings, um, but also to see how water itself is an aquasattva, how water teaches us how to have compassion, how to have wisdom, how to flow freely for the benefit of all beings. And, and so I was borrowing from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, mm-hmm. Who says that that water is a bodhisattva, and because it nourishes all living beings, and so I, I just find that so inspiring. So that's, oh, that's where beautiful. that comes from. So so with the aquasattva, I guess part of it is you actually have to realize this suffering for water, like within yourself as well. I mean, so the integral water ethic is 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 that fair to say that it's it's this process of recognizing that we are sort of the, the microcosm of the macrocosm, so yeah. to speak. Mm-hmm. And that, 
um, within us we is the the way we treat water within ourselves is it will also sort of be reflected out in the nat- into the rest of the world definitely yeah okay so this is kind of a strange question uh, but as as far as the research uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Masaru Emoto I'm sure you are and and some of his work um, for for those listeners that um, who are who are not aware of Masaru Emoto he essentially did some studies on on water on the structure of water and that it's affected by our our thoughts and our words and our attentions that we we place on it and I I guess my my question to you is because I'm I'm hearing you as far as sort of aquasat for being a teacher like that we can learn from water to what extent do you think that we like how is this how is this relationship happening because we we can obviously affect water but at the same time we're learning from water so there's a there's this mutual relationship going on and that in that we can can change water for the good or for the ill whether it's with our our thoughts our our intentions with with uh with what we put into it if we pollute it if we care for it or not and then there's something magical that happens that when we care for water we then are able to learn from water so like what's going on there i mean is it that (laughs) when we take care of water waters then can kind of open itself up and we can access sort of realms of consciousness from water that uh you know we, we can't otherwise we're taking care of it i mean what i know that i know that's a little out there but yeah what do you think well i the way that i see it like water water is uh, so special that often we take it completely for granted and we treat it like an it and so by learning to, to care more deeply for water and by, by cultivating intimacy and empathy with water, we are opening ourselves up to water and, and opening up that relationship that can develop. You know, so just like with another person, like we, we won't learn anything if we see that person as merely um, a means for our own ends. Like, like it, it's important to, to see the, the life of that person and to, to be receptive. And so the same thing can go with water. Um, I, don't, I don't really understand how, how that kind of relationship really works, but, yeah. but there's a sense of magic that can really open up whenever we start listening to water and, and engaging with water in a more um, conscious and conscientious way. And that's why I think um, contemplative practices are so important because they can, they can help us to engage with water um, with like multiple ways of, of knowing and, and can help us to awaken our senses and, and really engage in a, in a personal um, meditative, uh, respectful way yeah. with water. So just talking to this, I mean, what, what was, was your process in, in writing, uh, in writing the book and, and in getting through this work as far as your own practice and in, in building an integrate integral water ethic? Um, you're talking to these contemplative practices or, um, what, what really changed your relationship to water? 
Um, and, and was there like a moment in time, a spark you can kind of look back on as far as what set you out on this path and, and your journey with water? Well, um, one experience really steps out in my mind. And, and so this was after I'd been writing for a few years and already had this idea from Thich Nhat Hanh about water being a bodhisattva. Okay. And, and as I walked across bridges, I would pay special attention to the water that was flowing underneath the bridge. And I would try to open my heart to that water and say, how can I be of service? And, and there was a, a special moment where I was doing this at, um, at the Esalen Institute. Okay. And, and as I was asking, how can I be of service to you, water? I felt that water was asking that same question to me. And it was this kind of shift where it wasn't just about how I can help water, but water was saying, how can water help me and other living beings? And that kind of experiential awareness shifted something. Um, it was a more embodied um, experience that I had. And, and it got me to see that, that it's just so important to, to pay attention and to slow down and to, to open our, our ears and our heart because we never know what kind of messages can be coming through. Um, it's just important to listen. How did you even like get to a point though, where you felt that you could engage in that kind of a dialogue? I mean, it's, I feel like that's even a leap for some people, right? you know, um, which by the way, it's, it's, um, I, I, I get a kick out of like just listening to you saying you were on a bridge. Cause that's literally what you're doing. You're building a bridge yeah. between water and yourself through this, through compassion. But to even get to the point where you're sort of posing this question to water, mm -hmm as if it's already alive, that it's, um, be, it's more than a material thing and, and it, um, yeah. yeah how, how'd you even get, how did you get to that point? Yeah. Well, I've done a lot of, of, um, research and scholarship in, okay. in religion and ecology. And Thomas Berry is, is a big inspiration for me. And, and one of the things I've learned from Thomas Berry, the uh, cultural historian is, is that all things in the universe, they're not, they're not a collection of objects, but they're a communion of subjects. And, and it is our great work to cultivate mutually enhancing relationships with the more than human world. And, and so just having that understanding um, from really early on, like it got me thinking, well, I should try to put this into practice. Um, it doesn't mean much if, if it's just head knowledge, you know, I need to live it. And so then um, I started doing a practice pretty early on in my writing too, where I would drink from um, a bowl of water that was actually a bowl that was um, part of Thomas Berry's memorial service um, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And this, this bowl, I would pour water into every morning and I would, um, I would hold the water and, and ask like, what do you want to teach me? Um, I would try to see water as, as a subject who is alive. And, and I would just do this practice every day um, before I would write, um, just to see if, if it could spark something deeper. And, and I think it has been working. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it might be far-fetched, but if we just think about the simple act of drinking water, we do that mm -hmm. 
all the time, every day, multiple times a day. And, and so with, with that drinking of water, if we can turn that mundane practice into um, a ritual act that can like have the potential to, to teach us something, um, then I think those kinds of practices can really transform. So for you, was it the same bowl? And do you, I mean, you talk about this sort of being a ritual act. Yeah. How important do you think it is for people to build structure around the way that they, uh, I, I, I use structure like sort of in replace of ritual, maybe a little bit and, or structure gives rise to ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so do you, was it important for you to, to use the same bowl over and over again or? I mostly okay. use that same bowl, okay. but, but then sometimes I found myself writing when I wasn't at home and I needed to just to drink out of whatever cup I had. Okay. And, and that also worked and, and that kind of um, translated the practice okay. across different spaces. Um, and has your, I mean, ha, did you see your journey with water changing? The more you spent time with water, the more you, you were engaging in a dialogue. Definitely. I mean, how, how did that, how did that show up for you? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever you write a book, or do any kind of intense writing project, it kind of consumes you, whether you like it or okay. not. You know, yeah. it's just, it becomes all-encompassing. And and so I would start, I would just be thinking about water all the time. Um, and I practice Tai Chi and Qigong, and, and so that kind of uh, flowing practice really helped me to, to think with my movements and to really, um, like, settle into meditative states. Um, in between writing sessions and and that too was was really helpful like how how to flow like water how to open open up to water um and imitate water um so yeah that was another really big practice for me okay so can you 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 talk about your your work and and your practice with tai chi tai chi and qigong how was this like were you taught this were or is this something that came to you as far as um, learning how to move like water or is this something that arose within you as as you engaged more fully I mean you just sort of start to see water within everything right well well with with Tai Chi and Qigong it is a very watery practice you know it's about flowing fluidly okay and sometimes it's called you know swimming through the air Ah, and okay. and it's very uh, much connected with the Taoist tradition, and and the Tao Te Ching has so many references to water, um, and and so just just thinking about, yeah, the, the practice of Tai Chi and Qigong is is a water based practice. I I feel, um, and or at least water is a very dominant part of the practice. Okay, and so so as as I was writing this book, it was basically um, an excuse for me to do these these water type practices um, in it with a more heightened sense of awareness. Okay, and and I I would just say one of the things that I, just speaking to your work is is it's really such a I mean it is integral, but it's such a comprehensive look at um, water across all traditions. I mean I'm I'm. I really want to emphasize that. And, and it's just amazing to me how, um, first of all, just in looking at our, our world, some of these major world religions, that there is so much within them to learn from. There's so much to, um, it's there. The, the ecological practices are, are there. 
Um, it's just about finding them, uh, maybe emphasizing them and, and bringing them out. And then how these things really evolve and arise within other practices that we would maybe order to call secular or, or we like Tai Chi or Qigong, which have their roots and, and their philosophical basis in, um, in, would it, that be fair to say within religion? Like within, uh, okay. Um, and, and it's just been, um, a pleasure to, to read your work and, and to, to have someone who's looking at water in this way. And, um, I'm just so grateful to, to have, to have come across your work and, um, and, and to just be able to meditate on some of these concepts because it's changed the way in which I've been able to look at water, um, apart from thinking about it strictly in terms of, um, of some of these ritual practices in, in, um, within religion. So, um, thank you for, for all of the work that you're doing. Um, there's, there's one thing I I do want to ask you. Um, I purposely kind of want to put you on the spot here in that I just want you to say kind of what, what comes to your mind, um, at first. So, um, I, I, I'm wondering what are three things, like if someone came up to you and they said, how can I change my relationship to water? How can I build compassion? How can I work on, on some of these, these, uh, these moral, uh, how can I expand my, my morality when it comes to, um, working with water and living with water? What, what would be three things that you would emphasize to people as far as how, what they would do, how they would change what they think? I mean, anything, what, what would be the three main things that, that would come up for you? Hmm. What's your elevator speech on an integral water ethic here? (laughs) I would encourage people to, to see how they already relate to water, like, like what practices or, um, like sports or hobbies that they do, like what is already there with water and, and, and to see like, why, why are you drawn to that practice and to just to do that practice with a more intentional relationship to water. Um, so, so I guess that would be one thing, like start from where you are, um, and another, another thing I guess I would say is, is whenever you do any kind of, of practice with water, it's so important to slow down and pay attention. Like those, those points are, are so simple and yet profound because we're rushing so much in our lives and we're not, we're not really aware as we're doing it. So just slow down and pay attention. And as for a, a third thing, I'm not sure. That's um, okay. Yeah. So maybe I'll leave it with those two. Okay. And and those are such, uh, those are huge things in this day and age where we're moving so fast. We we don't um, we don't slow down to just pay attention. And um, yeah, so. Anyway, well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us here today. Thank you, Charlie. R- really appreciate having you and, and all the best in, in your future work. I look forward to what you do. And, and 
For everyone who's listening, again, Elizabeth's book, Loving Water Across Religions, Contributions to an Integral Water Ethic. And uh, yeah, and, and anywhere anyone can find it. Is that? Yeah, you can find okay. it on the Orbis Books website, but also okay. Amazon.com and okay. hopefully local booksellers too. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Crossing the river, Jordan. 